0: a scholar, a Christian scholar, who said, the more I read these three chapters, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. There is such a difficulty within the Sermon on the Mount, not for us to understand. In fact, there might only be one or two verses in all of the sermon that uh, takes a few more than just a, a few minutes to fully comprehend. It is not the understanding, it is the application of the Sermon on the Mount. That makes it so difficult. Because Jesus, when he breaks everything down, it is so practical. In fact, the whole point of the sermon is how to be holy, how to be part of his kingdom, how to be part of of where he will reign. And what Jesus would bring about in in Matthew chapter 5 is that we need to be more righteous than the righteous people. That even though we think that we have the right standards, the people in his day thought they had the right standards. Jesus said, "That's, that's not enough. That's not enough. You have to start with the heart. It's not just about the exterior. It's not just about the outside. It all begins with the heart. And Jesus would start by talking about the citizens of his kingdom. And he would talk about how he had not come to to do away with the law, but that he came to fulfill it. And then he gives us six different instances of different matters that might arise in the kingdom. And then he goes on to talk about worship, and he goes on to talk about finances. And then he he kind of concludes everything by talking about who his true followers really will be. And so to me it's just amazing whenever we can look at this sermon together and we can see what God has to say to us that uh, just as we heard that even though it was spoken 2,000 years ago, how real it is today and how it still applies and how challenging it is. As a matter of fact, if the Sermon on the Mount does not move us, if it does not challenge us, then we fit into the category of the scribes and Pharisees who are not worthy to inherit the kingdom of God. So we always need to make sure that we look at his word closely, and not just so that we can learn in an intellectual style, but that we can apply it to our lives. And I've been given probably the most, in my opinion, the most difficult subject, again, not to understand, but to apply loving your enemies. So if you have your Bibles, invite to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin at verse 43. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Before we begin tonight's lesson with Uh, Some points that I hope that we can walk away with this, this evening. I want us to start with verse 43 and really just kind of dissect what Jesus is saying. When we read, you have heard that it was said. Now I'm sure that you've Talked about this several times already, so I won't spend a lot of time on that. But the, you've heard that it was said again. It occurs around six different times, even though it might be worded a little bit differently. It all comes back to the same meaning that we will find in verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told. Now, what we need to understand about Jewish culture was it wasn't necessarily just the written commandments, the written Torah, but they followed the oral tradition. So when you see that, that, often you see a mix of the Old Testament scripture as well as an addition. Now the old Torah, or the, the oral Torah, the, the oral tradition, was not just opinion. But they were words that were spoken by rabbis, the, the forefathers, those who had gone on before. They were spoken as to explain not just what the, the Old Testament meant, but how it applied to new circumstances, new situations, so that when new situations arose, they would fully understand what they as a Jewish society were meant to do. So the oral Torah, the oral tradition, was not only opinion, it wasn't advice, but it was just as authoritative as the Holy Scriptures. As a matter of fact, I'd like to read you a quote from a, a modern-day rabbi. Rabbi David Rosen would say that the, old, the oral tradition was an ongoing exposition and application to new circumstances, and the rabbis were guided by the Holy Spirit of God. Wow. You talk about tradition having authority. This rabbi is saying it. it's not just what we think, it's not just what we feel, but, but these words were, were brought about by the Holy Spirit of God. And we see this exposition taking place. So let's go ahead and look in verse 43. Verse 43, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Well, well that's part of scripture, isn't it? In fact, that's an incomplete Quotation from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord showing, demonstrating the authority of the one that was speaking. So you shall not take vengeance. You shall not bear any grudges against the son of your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that part is part of the the Scriptures, But what about hate your enemy? Well, see, that's where the tradition comes into play. That's where we find this addition. Nowhere do we find in the Old Testament specifically where this quotation comes from, where we are to hate our enemy, but it was generally understood. But before we can talk about who their enemy was, we need to understand who their neighbor was. Based on Leviticus 19, verse 18, and several other passages, the the Jews during Jesus' time would consider the Jewish nation. Their enemies. Because when you talk about the sons of your people, that refers to your descendants. So in the Jewish mindset, when he, when they hear you shall love your neighbor as yourself, they're thinking of the Jewish community. So who were who their enemies? Well, during this time period, they were about ready to go into the promised land. And they were going to drive out the Canaanites. They were going to drive out the pagan nations who had done such wrong to God and had committed these. These horrific sins that God could no longer tolerate, it so He is letting them know the nation that He is going to have them drive out these nations. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one, God would tell them that they were to begin verse one going to about verse six that they were to go and utterly destroy the nations that they could not make a covenant with them, that they could not intermarry with the the, the children of these nations because the Israelites were a special people israel was a holy nation you shall not show them mercy god would say in deuteronomy 7 so you think about in the first century that the jews would hold any nation that was not the jewish nation as their enemy because they were they were sinners against god's own plan in the beginning. And even in this time period, the Jews kept to ceremonial laws and laws of purity. And since these other nations didn't keep to that, that they could not mix or mingle with the other nations. So now we're beginning to understand the loving your enemies part. You shall hate your enemy. You know, as we think about why they might hate their enemy, it wasn't a holier-than-thou perspective. It wasn't that the Jews were just thinking, I'm so great, I'm so perfect, although some of them walk that way. In their minds, these nations were not willing to conform to God's plan. In in their minds, these nations were not willing to follow God's word. In their minds, these people were rebellious. So it wasn't just simply, well, we're holier than you. It's you're not willing to conform against God. Well, we're going to continue waging this holy war. We're going to stand up for truth. We're going to stand up for what is right. We're going to stand up for what is just. And by holding to these truths, by holding to their principles, they ended up hating. And I think about that sometime as, as Christians, as Christians, who would we define as our enemy? Who would we consider those who are in opposition, opposition to us? You know, uh, on the way here, Erica and I were behind a car going about 20 miles under the speed limit. That caused me great irritation. Because I knew I had a place to be that night, uh, tonight, and, and, and we followed them for about 15 miles. And we were just, they were causing such, such difficulty for us to be where we were supposed to be. That person's not my enemy. You know, when you have football season start, and you have Auburn fans, you have Alabama fans, and you have this big rivalry, and things get a little spirited. Names are called. Uh, people don't speak to each other after certain Saturdays. They're not your enemy. The enemies we're talking about are people who don't hold to your beliefs. As a matter of fact, they probably ridicule them. Uh, We've seen that in the news. We've seen that uh, perhaps with presidential candidates. You might feel like, well, this person's my enemy. They they demonstrate immorality and they demonstrate how proud they are to be as immoral that they want to be. They will criticize you for your beliefs. They will belittle you for who you are as a person. And the thing that they love to do most is make you collapse under your own system of standards. Because if they can get you to fall apart, then that means that your God really isn't a real God. For if, if you were devoted to a true God, then you would stand to your truths. But the moment you sin, they'll laugh at you. See, these are the enemies we're talking about. How do you love these kind of people who injure you, who hurt you? See, the the Jewish people had the wrong sense of of enemies, but we have the right sense. It's interesting how often we can stand for justice, truth, righteousness. And because we stand so firmly on these principles, that we often make more enemies than, than we ought to have. In fact, we can be so spiritually minded, we can be so spiritually focused, we can be so focused that we're walking the spiritual walk that we can often walk right over those who are lost, those who need God. Sometimes we can have such an attention on what we're supposed to do that we miss the big picture. You know, that happened with the Jewish society because what was happening in Deuteronomy 7 was a specific instance, and it wasn't personal vengeance it wasn't just retaliation. It was God's justice demonstrated. It was God's judgment delivered through the Israelites. As a matter of fact, the way they were supposed to treat their enemies was with mercy. If you were to look at Exodus 23, 4, if, if an Israelite was to come across their enemy's donkey or ox, well, just kind of wandering around, they are to bring that ox or that donkey back to their enemy to show them mercy. Well, what happened is that people blew this understanding of, of judgment with the land of Canaan out of proportion. So Jesus has to address this. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, This is where I want us to begin tonight. We're going to look at four quick things, all starting with the same letter as a preacher ought to, right, Giff? You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy, but I say to you, first, what Jesus is going to talk about is how we must rise above the standard and love our enemies. Beginning of verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, Jesus would often contrast the tradition with God's standards. And when Jesus would say, but I say to you, you know what he was saying there? He's saying, but I have all authority. Even though you've been taught these things, you must listen to me. In, In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus would talk about how all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. That he was the exact representation, the exact image of the nature of God according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 that how in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus, He was God, that He had all authority. So He says, I want you to listen to me. You've been brought up, you've been raised to hate your enemies, but I say to you. See, what was so amazing about the Sermon on the Mount is that He taught as one having authority and not as one of the scribes. We'd read that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 29. And what Jesus would say is, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. I want you to stop and just think about the ramifications of that statement. Love your enemies. Because if you want a picture of biblical love, what, what true love really means You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We don't have time to look there tonight, but I would write it down and look at it later. I'm sure most of us could quote sections of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul would dedicate a whole section of his letter to Corinth just about love because they were missing love in their church. They were caught up in factions. They were caught up in pride. They were fighting with one another, and they were missing the the central point, which is that they ought to love each other. And you think about some of the things that Paul would mention about love. How love keeps no record of wrongs. How love is patient. Love is kind. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. You know, it's a wonderful chapter to hear at a wedding. Valentine's Day. See people post it on Facebook about this is what love really means. Try applying that to your end. Your enemy could be someone that's an in in-law, someone who's a boss, a co-worker, another family member. It could be someone who attends this congregation, who wears the name Christian. You are to be kind to them. You are to be patient with them. That when they do something wrong against you, you're not supposed to hold it against them. You're not to keep any record of it. That even though no matter how poorly they treat you how how badly they they persecute you that they torture you mentally physically whatever the case might be that you endure that you never fail jesus why are you telling us to do this you might say well jesus i don't get why you wrote this or why why you said this why did you allow this to be written i have to love my enemy i have to do what paul says in first corinthians 13 and apply it to my enemy you don't understand what I'm going through. Many of us, probably in this room, have faced persecution of, of emotional sense. Maybe some of us have faced physical abuse. How are we to love those kind of people? Maybe if God just simply understood what I was going through, all the harm that caused me, all the anger that they produced, the temptations that came about that friendship, that relationship, Maybe God would give me a pass. Turn with me to Romans Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I want you to hear what Paul would have to say on that. Paul would understand being persecuted. He would understand being tempted. He would understand being tortured. But here's what Paul has to say about loving your enemies. Begin in verse 17. Never... Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you'll reap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, that's a challenge, because we see never, not once, not sometimes, not, well, there's that one circumstance, so I'm excused, never repay evil with evil. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further. If you have the King James, New King James, you'll see, um, do good to those who use you or those who hate you. You'll see, uh, bless those who curse you. I was talking to a, a scholar from Faulkner, and uh, he kind of explained that, That that might have been uh, borrowed from Luke's account. Uh, But we have the understanding of what Luke and Matthew are saying is how you are to treat your enemy. You are to treat them opposite the way that they treat you. As a matter of fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that we ought to pray for them. Prayer is something that is supernatural that we get to take part of every single day. When we think about prayer, that it is a spiritual privilege that we have in Christ It is a privilege that not every person has to pray to God. That the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, hears the groanings that are difficult to utter. That Jesus is our mediator who sits at the right hand of God. That we have the capability with confidence to go before God in prayer. And what are we supposed to do? We're to bring that enemy's name before God. We would be like Stephen. You remember Stephen the, the last words he would ever utter before he died Father, forgive them. Father, do not hold this charge against them." Where was Stephen? He was probably either in a pit or he was in a corner, having stones hurled at him, being beaten. and he says, "Father, forgive them." The proof that the true evidence that you love your enemies, is that you use this gift that only a few have to ask God to bless them. You think about that for a minute, that you have this, this capability of going to the one who created heaven and earth, that the one that sustains this world, the one that's given this divine revelation, this one that you follow. And you go to him and you say, Father, I want you to be with so and so. Father, their lives are not right. Father, they've caused issue with me, that they've sinned against me and against you. Father, please forgive them. Be with them. It's amazing to think about the power of prayer and where to use it. Some would say we are to waste it on our enemies. But Jesus would say, pray for those. Pray for those. You know, when you think about when someone sins against you, they're not only sinning against you, causing harm against you, but they are incurring the wrath of God. And in doing so, their soul is now in jeopardy, especially if we're talking about someone who's lost. And you have the capability of being an influence to them and, and going before God for them. Not saying that we can absolve the sins of another, there's another way of salvation, but we can pray that they might come to know the truth. When you put it in that perspective, sometimes the problems of a person are bigger than our own heartaches. And we need to be humble enough. To pray for them. One author would say, R.T. Kendall, what if when you get to heaven you discovered that you were blessed as you were because your enemy had crossed into the supernatural and prayed for you and God heard this person? We're not only to love our enemies, but we are to pray for those who hurt us. Secondly, we're to risk the blessings. We are to risk the blessings. Verse 45 that you may be the sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We need to be more like God. I can't imagine how God does it. Because as bad as I might have been treated in my short life here on this earth in 26 years, I can't imagine how many hundreds of years how many thousands of years God has had people mocking him and God still sends the rain God still allows the sun to shine God has not allowed judgment day to occur yet the day of sentencing the day of absolute this is it for the sake of those who do evil against him Well we read in the book of James chapter 1 verse 17 every good every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights First John chapter 4 verse 8 The one who does not know does not love does not know God for God is love Some some might say and this this sounds like a good reason. You know Jason, I can't I can't pray for them. I can't do good things for them because what if what if they receive these blessings and they think they're in the right and they continue persecuting me, they continue to to mock God. How how in the world can I can I bless someone like that? You know that's not our call. Our call is not to be the ultimate judge. Remember Romans chapter 12? Vengeance is mine. We are never to take care of our own debts. Instead, we are to love and try to convince and the best that we can to be at peace with all men. And our God is the God of love. Every good thing that has ever existed on this earth that's been given to us is through our Father. And He doesn't bless only us, although we have a special blessing. We have several spiritual blessings that no others have. But we see, to a limited extent, God's grace upon this world. And he gives it to the unrighteous and to the righteous. You know, I want you to think about, we're called to be sons of our Father. You know where else that's used in the Sermon on the Mount? It's used in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We never better represent God than when we love our enemies. That is when we look the most like our God. You know, you see a, a child, especially around the age of three or four, they immediately start looking like their parents. And they resemble their parents. And you can tell that child belongs to so-and-so. Can you imagine if people just pointed and looked at us? Oh, that, that's a Christian. That we're not peacemakers, that we just keep the peace, but we make the peace. We take the initiative. And how we take the initiative, We pray. It's not that through our prayer, asking their forgiveness, that we are excusing their sin or, or condoning the sin. But we are acting the way the Father acted towards us. Thirdly, we need to raise the stakes. We need to raise the stakes. Verses 40, 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? They're not even tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Now, this might sound very similar to the first point, which is rise above. Well, it is because it's very similar what Jesus is saying. As a matter of fact, we see the idea of greeting only brothers. We see that in in verse 43. You shall love your neighbor. Who are the neighbors? Well, the Jewish brethren. Well, who weren't their neighbors? The Gentiles, the other nations, the pagans. Well, what Jesus says is, you know how you despise the tax collectors, how they use you, how they abuse you, how they they take more from you than you, than, than they're supposed to? You know how much you don't like those Gentiles, how they're filthy, how they're dirty, and how you don't have anything to do with them? That is how you are perceived if you only love and greet those who love you and greet you. What challenge is it? How how difficult it must be for us as Christians to only love those who love us. Those who give us presents and gives us praise. Boy, it's really difficult to love them. Absolutely not. It is so easy for us on Sundays and Wednesdays to greet those that we've come to know over a course of several years here at this congregation. But how much more difficult it is to love those who genuinely despise you, who will say nothing to you or at least not a kind word to you. But you know what? That's who we're called to be. We're to shine as lights on this earth. We must raise the stakes. We must be better. Not better than them like this is a competition, but we must be better than our former selves, than the way we used to walk on this earth. You know, I was thinking about the idea of the challenge of greeting. When I was uh, first interning at Oxford, there was a lady there. Uh, I'll I'll change names. I'll call her Leslie. Uh, She was an African-American woman. And I I went to the nursing home, and uh, sitting next to her was one of our elders. So since I was really nervous, this was my first week on the job, I first went to Clarence and shook his hand And then I went to shake Leslie's hand. She did not like that. She, for the next several months, told everybody that I was racist, that I was pompous, that I was a good-for-nothing, that I was a total fake, over a handshake, because a 21-year-old didn't know what in the world he was doing, but he was trying to make his best effort to make a good impression to his boss. There's nothing I could do. I couldn't sit down and talk to her about it because she refused to talk about it. But she wouldn't let me around her grandchildren. She wouldn't let me into her own home. And I thought about this verse. And for the rest of the time, I interned there and my next internship. I made it a point every single Sunday morning, every single Sunday night, every single Wednesday evening, every time I saw her, to personally go to her and say, hey, Leslie, how are you today? Hey, Leslie, it's a beautiful morning, isn't it? Hey, Leslie, what a great evening it is to come together and worship God. And first, she wouldn't even talk to me. She kind of give me a gruff. As time went on, she said, yeah, it's okay. About six months later, again, about the next time I started interning, I preached a lesson, and afterwards, she came up to me and said, Jason, I really appreciate what you preached. I never heard another unkind word from her. The way we push back against the opposition is we, we give them love. We go out of our way to set the example. It doesn't matter how long it takes. It doesn't matter how difficult it might be. We set the example for those who need it. Because that is what God has called us to do. We must be the example we expect from others no matter how long it takes. We can't go around bragging that we're better than tax collectors and Gentiles. Well, at least I'm not like so-and-so over there. At least I'm not like Leslie holds grudges. God has called us to do more. I want to bring one more point to your attention, unless it be yours. We need to resemble the Father. We talked about this a little bit before. I want to go in a little bit more detail, and we'll end this class this evening. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, you've got to be kidding me. First, you're telling me I've got to love my enemy. Now, you're telling me I've got to pray for my enemy. You're saying I have to be perfect. It's impossible to be perfect, is it not? We well, you know the word perfection carries along the understanding of, a, of an animal that's about to be sacrificed that has no blemish, does not have a spot. It reminds me of, of James chapter 1, verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God, our Father is this to visit the orphans and the widows in a time of trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted in this world. That's what Jesus is saying, is you you must now be complete. You must now be mature. You must now be blameless. You must now be without blemish. You must be without spot. You must be like your Father. And again, you might be saying to yourself, you know what, I appreciate what you're saying. I've read this, this passage several times, but you have no idea what I've gone through. You have no idea the the amount of difficulty I've faced because of certain people. You have no idea what kind of harm they've caused me physically, emotionally. You have no idea what I've gone through, so you can't just stand here and say, I have to love my enemies. You're right about one part. I may not understand what you've gone through, but I do understand a God who has so loved us that he came down to our level. That he put away his prestige, his privileges. He took on human form. I understand that this, this God fed those who wanted to make him king. They wanted to use him. I understand that he brought people back from the dead in the midst of a crowd who laughed at him. I understand this is the individual who wanted to save us. And he was nailed to a cross. That at his trial, people shouted, crucify him, kill him, get him out of our sight. That they came up to mock him, to take what was the few belongings that he might have had. And in the midst of all that, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the torture, in the midst of everything that he was going through as he was hanging on that cross about ready to die, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And understand that this God wants us to be saved so much that he sent out his followers, full well knowing that most of them would be killed, that they would die, that they would be persecuted, because the message is so important that we can come to know our Father. How many people in heaven will will be in heaven that personally mocked our Lord? Have you ever thought about that? How many individuals in heaven will be in heaven? Because they obeyed the gospel. But just only a month or so before, they're spitting on their Savior. What we would read in 1 John 4, verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We will never begin to understand and appreciate the depth of the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ until we are, with a willing heart, able to pray and love our enemies. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the greatest sermon ever preached, we read that we are to love one another. Let's make sure we're following the words of the one who has all authority, the one who died on that cross saying, forgive them, and the one who reigns today willing to take us in, forgive us, and call us his own. Let's go to our Father in prayer. Our righteous Heavenly Father,